0: How do I know what I think until I see what I say?
1: I'm your host, Jacob Goronsky, and welcome to From the Green Notebook, where we create leaders one podcast at a time. So if you don't feel like reading a blog today, then sit back and listen as we discuss some of the most important topics and talk with some of the most innovative leaders of today. So please subscribe and make sure you listen to these exclusive episodes. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic. The best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today.
0: Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and I'm really excited about this week's episode. Jacob and I are sitting down with organizational psychologist David Burkis. Now, David's the author of Leading From Anywhere The Essential Guide to Managing Remote Teams, and one of my favorite books on networks. Friend of a friend, understanding the hidden networks that can transform your life and your career. Okay, so one of the areas that I have struggled with throughout my entire military career is going to meetings. I've never been a fan of them. You know, we spend so much time in them throughout the week and we make so many key decisions yet so many of them are bad. It's because we're never really taught or trained how to plan or run meetings. And how do we get the most out of the time where we're pulling people from across the organization into a single room? And as David points out in this interview, when we pull 12 people into a meeting, we're not using one hour of productivity. We're using 12 hours of the organization's productivity. So why not make the most out of it? So in this episode, he is going to give us a ton of practical advice on meetings. And some of it, just to be honest with you, I have never heard before this interview. We're also going to have a great discussion about the importance of leaders fostering psychological safety in organizations, and he's going to talk to us today about why this matters so much. And then finally, towards the end of the episode, we're going to have a good discussion about the importance of networks and why they are so critical to our professional and personal success. So
2: please welcome to the show, Dr. David Berkus. Hey, thanks so much to you both for having me.
1: Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Uh, We're looking forward to the conversation. And uh, maybe you could just take a minute and share a bit about yourself with our listeners.
2: Yeah. So I'm an organizational psychologist by training, writer by passion, although that kind of gets it backwards. I grew up always wanting to write books. I thought that meant fiction. But when I was in undergrad, I found organizational psychology Ended up doing a master's and a doctorate in that with the goal of taking a lot of ideas from behavioral science and making them more practical and applicable. One of the big problems with most academic disciplines, but especially actually readily applicable stuff like psychology, is that it is written for an audience of 15 other academics and it never actually gets used. So I've dedicated most of my career to helping translate those insights, bring them through storytelling, through practical takeaways and applications, making them much easier to explain how the world around us, mostly the people around us work and how we can work better as a result.
0: Well, David, thanks for coming on the show today. And, you know, Jacob and I talk about all the time, like we hate meetings. And so we we both listen to your podcast and we figured you would be a great person to tell us how to do better meetings.
2: Yeah. Okay. So the bar is set, right? I think the funny thing is we're talking about, and this is what I think most people don't get is right now as we're recording this, we're talking about two different types of meetings, right? Like if you haven't figured it out, the dynamics of an in-person meeting, first of all, most of the in-person ones are pretty terrible. so you know, give ourselves a little bit of grace here. But the dynamics of an in-person meeting are totally different than the dynamics of an online meeting, a Zoom or a Microsoft Teams or some sort of video chat meeting. There's actually a lot of differences. And I think one of the big mistakes a lot of people have made for the last year is just assuming, hey, what we did in that in-person meeting, let's just do that version of that online and everything will work out. And there's two big problems with that, right? One, most in-person meetings were a waste of time anyway. And two, it's a totally different energy flow. It's a totally different result. There's things you can do through technology that really can reduce the amount of time you're in meetings and all that sort of stuff. So, man, there's a lot to cover. Where should we get started?
0: Let's just talk about running meetings. Like, what, what would you recommend if
2: I'm running a meeting? Like, what do I need to do? Yeah. I mean, so the first thing we need to do is actually sort of reflect on what is the purpose of the meeting, right? And we always have a meeting every Monday at 10 a.m. is not a purpose, right? You can have a variety of different reasons for a meeting, right? You can even have, they are just calling this meeting so people can come and sort of socialize. But if we identify that, that helps us shape the actual agenda. This is like where most people start, right? As they say, well, every meeting should have an agenda. Like, no, because if you have a terrible agenda, you might actually have been better without one. Every meeting should start with, why are we calling Everyone together. Why are we spending their time? Right. The cost of a one-hour meeting with twelve people is not an hour. It's twelve hours plus travel time if you're doing this in-person meeting thing. Right. And so we want to honor that. I've always found this fascinating about organizations: private organizations, nonprofit organizations, government organizations, military organizations. Right. They all sort of work the same in this way, where you could call a meeting with nobody pushing back on it. You could call a meeting and take eight or nine hours of time based on the number of participants in a meeting. But if you want a new stapler, you have to get like seven signatures to spend $14 on a new stapler, right? It's the weirdest dynamic. So we start with that purpose. What are we doing here? And most of the purpose of these meetings, if we're calling people together, should be to discuss something, right? So I'm separating out the normal meetings we think of from like trainings, right? Where the purpose is to convey information. If we're just talking about getting a bunch of people together, whatever the purpose is, we should be thinking, what are we actually trying to discuss here? And then how can we arrive at that? Sometimes that means coming up with ideas. Sometimes that means selecting ideas from a variety of proposals. But when you start with that idea of like, we need to identify the true purpose, the reason we're spending all of this time. And then we need to frame that around a discussion. Your agenda looks a whole lot different than your Average weekly all hands meeting agenda where everybody submits a thing and we all waste 15 minutes at a clip of each other's time for two hours. That's a totally different type of meeting, right? So I would say we start there, right? That's probably the biggest place to start.
1: Yeah, the comment resonates with me so much because Joe and I talked about this. And let me just caveat that I can't say that I hate all my meetings. You know, just I'm not sure who's going to listen to the podcast. So some of them are very beneficial. But there's a book called Rework and they talk about that. They break down exactly what you just said, that if you have 12 people or 15 people in a meeting that you're not just taking a meeting, you know, for an hour. But like you said, you're taking 15 people times an hour and that is what you're taking away and what you're costing your company. So talk a little bit about the difference between, you know, a lot of times I feel like people set weekly meetings and even if there's nothing to talk about that week, they're going to have the meeting anyways. Why are we so adverse to just sending out an email saying, hey, nothing really significant to discuss this week. Let's catch up again the same time next week.
2: Yeah. So there are times where I think it's worth calling a regular recurring meeting. Like for a lot of teams, especially teams that are having to work across time zones and things like that. I'm a big fan of this sort of daily stand-up meetings, the check-in meetings, that kind of stuff, right? But again, there's a purpose behind that meeting, which is to get caught up. And when you identify that purpose, the meeting is 15 minutes long, not an hour long, because we always have an hour meeting on Mondays at eleven AM, right? So I'm totally with you there. You know, the weird thing is I actually wrote an article about this in Harvard Business Review maybe three years ago about sort of no, that whole meeting couldn't have just been an email. But what it gets at the core at is if the purpose you've identified is to present new information, in other words, it's my job to just update you on what's coming down from headquarters, et cetera. Yeah, those things could have been an email, right? Or even better now, they could have been a pre-recorded video with a slideshow. And even if you want to call a meeting to discuss it, you could take that part and throw it in the beginning and make sure that everybody sees it ahead of time, not at our time where we're gathered, right? So I think there are reasons to check in on a regular basis, like when you're getting together because everybody needs to give a report, but you're exactly right. Sometimes there is nothing to report. And so you have to play with the right frequency of doing that for software coder teams that invented this sort of daily scrum from the world of Agile, software development. It was a daily thing, right? Some teams, it's a weekly thing. Sometimes you could go weeks without actually needing an update from the other functions of the organization. You decide that. We settled into a week. I don't actually know, right? Because we live our lives in weeks. And so we just assumed, but there isn't really a reason to do it. The reason should be what frequency of time do we need these check-ins? And then we go from there.
0: And so, once we have our purpose and we figure out why we're meeting, you know, one of the things that I struggle with, and I will stand by my statement, Jacob, like, I hate all meetings. And that's, <laughs> I, I,
2: we got some I tension here. Jacob cares about his career. Joe, on the other hand, is tanking it right in front of us.
0: Can we edit out this whole section of the interview? No, I gave you your
1: chance. You, you totally doubled down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, cuz one of the biggest things I struggle with, David, is like an article I wrote a couple months ago is this idea of briefing empathy cuz I feel like when people talk in meetings, like they just completely shut down what's going on around them and just start talking. Like h- how important is it to read the room and to pay attention to what the body language of other people
2: Yeah. I mean, this is one of the advantages that in-person meetings still have over virtual meetings, right? Is it's much harder to read the room in a virtual meeting. So people even do it less, but you're exactly right. A lot of people get really comfortable with that idea, but this not to sort of beat a dead metaphor or dead cliche here, but it goes back to that idea of purpose, right? If we assume that the purpose of the meeting is to present information, then we're going to present that information and not read the room, right? If the purpose is discussion, then that changes the attendee list, that changes the agenda. And that actually makes empathy more important. But I also think it makes empathy more likely. Because again, if your goal in bringing everyone together is to understand their perspective through discussion, then you're not serving your goal if you're just talking, right? Now, this takes a long time to develop. This is a skill, right? Empathy and understanding the people and reading the room is a skill that needs to be developed. But if you don't actually start from a place of, I need to do this, your skill never really develops. So if you're listening to this and you're like, great, I'm in, where do I start? Here's my little tip. Is find a trusted person on your team, somebody who you know is going to be in that meeting, and pull them aside ahead of time and say, "Would you watch me? Like watch me and watch the room because I'm going to get going into a bunch of different information. And I know I have a tendency to just look over everyone, and so could you pay attention to the room, pay attention to their reactions, and we'll circle back afterwards. And you can tell me, oh, you know, when you made this joke, well, it didn't quite land with these three people, and now they might be offended. You might want to follow up on that, right? Or like, you know, you did overtalk these two people multiple times, so we we need to be more aware to draw them out of the conversation. I will say it is incredibly hard to be focused on running an efficient meeting and also running an empathetic one. And so I think a lot of times having a trusted partner watching you to give you feedback on it afterwards can be a huge step to developing that skill.
0: I love that you said that about having somebody watch you and gave you feedback. Because I remember one time, it was after a meeting, a high-ranking officer pulled me into his office and goes, what did you not like about the plan that we discussed? And I was like, what are you talking about, sir? And he goes, you rolled your eyes like three times in that meeting. And he's like, I just want to know what it was. And so I know for me, it's like having somebody help me watch my body language in meetings so I can get a little bit better control of that.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's super helpful. I grew up in the Northeast of the United States, which is a drier, more sarcastic part of the country than where I live now, which is the South, right? Even though the South can be just as sarcastic, right? Like it took me a couple of years to learn that bless your heart is actually an insult, but I eventually figured it out. So having somebody watch that, because you think you're hilarious, like I'll throw stuff out because I'm just being funny that other people... Didn't really grow up with dry humor. My wife has been very good for me for the last 20 years for that. And I realized that I need sort of a work version of that as well to be like, dude, you gotta tune down. You're at 11 on the sarcasm meter. You need to go down to like a four in order to not rub multiple people the wrong way. Where did you grow up, dude? I grew up outside of Boston. Groton, Massachusetts.
1: So I grew up right outside of Worcester, Massachusetts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. When I first came into the military, I would be, you know, exactly what you said, just kind of jabbing with people and it's a friendly banter. And the next thing I know, I got somebody in my face that wants to fight and I'm kind of laughing because I'm like, I I don't know what you're upset about. I really don't. Like, I thought we were just playing around and just, it's a different sense of humor. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And my wife just straight up tells me I'm not funny, so.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it's totally Totally true. People don't get it. But when you, especially in New England area, like our love language is snark, right? It's not words of affirmation or quality time. It's snark. It's yes, hard yes. for people to figure that out. So you two weren't teaming up on me before the show? No, we were showing you how much we appreciate you by belittling you. Doesn't that make perfect sense? Yeah, exactly.
1: In our world. Yes. So, what is your stance on questions, then, David? Because I know that, you know, when I'm in a meeting, the one thing that I will say can get frustrating is when people ask questions that don't really need to be asked and when they just don't have anything to do with the topic. And then a lot of times people take the opportunity to turn questions into, hey, let me tell you how much I know about this information or whatever topic we're speaking on, and then throw in some, you know, arbitrary question.
2: Or even it's not really a question, it just intones up at the end. Right. Yeah. We've all definitely been there. You know, there's two things here, right? So first, there are some people that are just jerks, right? And want to dominate the conversation and they use that question and answer time to do it. And it takes a good and also empathetic host to, you know, pull that person aside, like the high ranking officer with Joe and go, dude, what's going on here, right? And have that conversation with that person. But there's a lot of times where excess questions and excess discussions are actually a signal that that person isn't being given an opportunity in any other situation to express dissent or express their perspective. So that can actually be kind of an indicator that maybe we need to build more discussion time into the agenda. Maybe I need to increase my one-on-ones with that person so that they have an opportunity to feel heard. There are definitely times where people use that sort of open any questions call to insert something that feels off topic, but it's not off topic to them. They've been waiting for it for two weeks, right? For the opportunity. And this is the only chance they're going to get. So again, it's a skill to develop. It, it takes a savvy leader and an empathetic leader to understand the difference between that. When is someone being a wonderful example of jerkitude, And when is someone just trying to be heard for once at work, you know?
0: Yeah. Thanks, David. I'm curious, you know, if I'm going into a meeting, like how would you recommend I prepare just so I don't look like a jerk or that I can get the most out of my time in that meeting? Are you leading the meeting or are you
2: attending the meeting?
0: Let's just say I'm attending the meeting.
2: Okay. So I'm going to actually take a step back and go. One of my other big things, once we identify the purpose and that sort of thing is we build the right agenda and the right attendees, which not often people do. They just call whoever they have authority over, right? Even if we only actually need half of the people on the team. And my recommendation to most leaders building an agenda is to make your agenda based on questions, right? Because remember, the purpose is to sort of discussion, to arrive at a solution maybe, or even just hear everybody out. So you could still have a top line like budget, but what is the big question around the budget that needs to be answered? If I were preparing for a meeting, that's what I would try and take the time to identify. Because if a leader sent me the agenda, and you absolutely should be getting the agenda ahead of time so you know where you can contribute... I would be looking at it and asking two questions, right? What do I have to contribute to this discussion? And then what question do I think we're trying to get answered, right? And even to go so far as print out the agenda and write out that question in the margins, right? This is why I think we're bringing this up. How are we going to meet the same deliverables with a 25% reduced budget? Maybe is the reason we're talking about that agenda item. And so I would have that in the margins to remind myself, like this is where we're supposed to be. And if I have information that contributes to answering that question, I should share it. And if I don't, then I should be trying to learn what's going on. And maybe I wrote the wrong question down, which is the other thing, right? If you're paying attention to everyone in the room and what they're contributing and you suddenly realize, whoa, I thought we were talking about something different. Scratch it out. Write what you think that sort of new question we're trying to get answered is. And in fact, if you've got a leader that planned this whole thing out and they just had a generic agenda, et cetera, you can be one of the most valuable people when it comes time to speak up by going, you know, it sounds like what we're really trying to answer is this question. Do I have that right? And now everyone in the room is like, Yeah, that is it. That's what we're actually here for. And maybe some of those interruptive questioners and those sort of things are almost preemptively cut off by that because you've now guided that discussion to the benefit of everybody towards that thing we're trying to get answered.
1: Today's episode is also sponsored by veteran-owned Alpha Coffee Company. Their premium 100% Arabica coffee is freshly roasted for a bold, delicious flavor. Alpha Coffee supports veteran charities and has donated over 19,000 bags of coffee to deployed troops. They also offer a combinable 10% military discount and 10% off for subscriptions. Taste the Alpha difference. Purchase their coffee today from their online store or via Amazon Prime.
0: Yeah, David, that's extremely helpful advice. And, you know, I will definitely take that you know, into meetings with me. And you've talked a lot on your podcast and your latest book about meetings. And, you know, it's very timely because, you know, we're all operating remote right now because of the coronavirus. How do you think meetings are going to change moving forward?
2: So I think the almost daily presence of virtual meetings in our life is probably not going away. I just hope it's getting better. And when I say that, I'm lumping one-on-one video calls in with, you know, 25-person meetings and that sort of stuff. But I think we experimented around with that technology and there are certain reasons for getting people together that I think it's going to be hard to justify getting them physically together. Problem-solving creativity, I don't think the tech is there yet, right? But if our purpose is to distribute information, that actually is going to go pre-recorded a lot of times and just on software that can track and make sure that Joe actually watched it or that Jacob actually completed the questions at the end or that sort of stuff, right? But even those sort of discussion meetings, report meetings, the check-in meetings that we talked about often, even if we're all back working in the same space, like it costs more than just the one hour of the meeting to get everything together because people have to stop working, set it aside. Maybe they have to go across, go all the way to the other side of a base to get to that in-person meeting. So it's actually a two-hour meeting for you because you're going 30 minutes across the way. If it can be held virtually, it's going to be, right? I think when the great work from home experiment began in all sectors, right? Most people had this attitude that this isn't going to work. And it took some pain, but there are definitely things that are working. And those things that are working, we're not going back to. And I think certain meetings, that's part of it. So, So get used to that idea, right? If you haven't already bought a good quality webcam, buy it. You're going to be using it a lot in the future, even when the pandemic's over. So on the podcast, a lot of our guests talk
1: about trust in different ways, trust in leadership in an organization, you know, trust in mentors, trust in yourself. But in this particular conversation, I'd like to focus on the trust in an organization and and obviously the importance of that. But how do you recommend building trust within an entire organization? What are some of the things that you like to do?
2: Yeah, so I actually look at trust as sort of one side of a coin that needs to be considered in tandem, right? So I actually think the most important thing in your organizations is seek psychological safety, which is a combination of mutual trust and respect, right? Psychological safety, when people feel safe to express themselves, to speak up, like we were talking about earlier, when they feel safe to take risks, or at least they know the limits within their risks should fall so they're not costing anybody else poor performance, they express themselves more. You get more out of the same knowledge, skills, and abilities. You get a better person at work when they feel psychologically safe. We've known that for sort of decades. The next challenge is how do you build that? And when you look at that, psychological safety is characterized by mutual trust and respect. And those are two very different things, right? But they play together, right? So trust is, if we're thinking about the concept of, let's say, speaking up in a meeting that has psychological safety or doesn't. I trust the group when I feel safe to express my dissenting view and I trust that I'm not going to be judged, right? Like Joe had a lot of psychological safety to say that he hates all meetings, right? Because he trusts that he's not going to be penalized for expressing that perspective, right? Well, you
1: would really call it psychological safety because I might have another word
2: for it. (laughs) (laughs) Great example, Jacob, because the flip side of that is respect, which is after I speak up, how do I feel? Do I feel that I was actually heard? Do I feel that people are committing to it? And you know, like leaders know, my big question for whether or not you have psychological safety, right? Is when was the last time somebody spoke up to disagree with YouTube, right? When? Was it a week ago? Was it two weeks ago? Was it months ago? Because that's a problem, right? And the problem is probably that when people on the rare occasion that they do, obviously in a military context, in situations where that is smart or permissible. But when people do, how you react, whether or not you react with respect is going to influence whether or not they feel that they can trust you or, and whether or not they feel that you are trusted in them. That's the weird thing about trust too, is that it's reciprocal. All right. We know that trust, I mean, on a biochemical level, we know that trust is a result of the presence of oxytocin, the bonding hormone in your bloodstream. And that chemical seems to be reciprocal. In other words, when people just act trustworthy towards you, floods your body with oxytocin, and you're actually more likely to respond in trustworthy behavior unless you're a sociopath, which they are pretty low on oxytocin in general. That's one of the problems, right? Um, So trust is that reciprocal thing. So we need to be making sure that we're demonstrating respect, but we also need to demonstrate that we believe in you. So that means, and I think I talk about this in the podcast episode in the article, that means everything from delegating decisions, if you can, to if you can't, taking the time to explain the rationale behind your decision so that gradually people understand your perspective, understand your point of view, and can almost predict it. And then maybe it's actually safe to delegate decisions and things like that. But at least, explaining that rationale is huge. Doing things like, again, openly soliciting dissent or openly soliciting people's perspectives or opinions so that you're getting their information before you're charging forward. These are all ways of saying, I trust you. I trust your perspective. I trust your knowledge and skills and abilities, and I'd like to hear it. And they result in people feeling trusted and then actually trusting you more as well. So that combination of how you respond, the respect piece to who you would invest trust into, all of that combines into that sense of psychological safety, which is what we know really underpins whether or not a team works together effectively. It doesn't mean you feel safe all of the time. It means that you feel that the people around you don't have it out for you, that you can actually trust and they respect you, right? That you can put faith in them. You might be in a dangerous situation, so you don't feel safe in that context, but you feel like they've got your back. That's what we're going for when we say psychological safety.
0: Hey, David, thank you so much. I've learned a lot today on having better meetings in case I'm ever allowed in another meeting again. And you know, just the trust component of leadership, which is so critical. I'd like to shift gears for a couple minutes and talk about networks with you. A few years ago, I read your book, Friend of a Friend, Understanding the Hidden Networks that Can Transform Your Life and Career. I personally thought it was one of the best books I've read on the subject. And so I'd like to ask you, how important are networks to personal and professional?
2: success. <laughs> I mean they're huge, right? That's why you read it and that's the case we make in the book. I mean, at their core networks, meaning social networks, how people form connections to each other, etc. Networks affect our flow of information, right? And whether or not we're in an echo chamber or whether or not we're in too tight of a network or we're in a diverse enough network to get an accurate read of what's going on around us. All of that is shaped by networks. So I don't mean Networks are hugely important for your professional success, just from the standpoint that most people talk about, which is, you know, oh, it's all who you know. And if this person knows you, you're going to get a great assignment and that sort of stuff. I mean, it is that I can't lie, but also you're going to do better in the role. Because if you've got a broad and diverse network, if you're checking in with what we call weak and dormant ties regularly, so you're understanding the viewpoint of people who are in a totally different function or a totally different geographic region from you and you can see how all of that fits together you're going to make better decisions. History is full of people making terrible decisions, some business, some governmental, some military decisions, terrible decisions based on a lack of information that a much more diverse network would have solved. So beyond just the it's who you know, et cetera, to get ahead, there's the idea that you will perform better if you have better access to information. And the only way that flows is through human networks.
0: You mentioned dormant and weak ties, and this is a great example of a weak tie. Is it I think I spoke to you like two or three years ago. <laughs> and then, as Jacob and I are putting together this podcast, like I reached out again. But for those listeners who are unfamiliar with those terms, could you talk about that a little
2: bit? Yeah, yeah, sorry. I flew through a couple <laughs> terms there. So a weak tie is someone you know, but you don't know that well, right? So it's somebody maybe that you're on assignment near. It's somebody that you kind of know, but you know his name or you know her name, but you don't really know a lot about their backstory, et cetera. In a business context, I always joke that this is the person that you know, but you only see them when there's cake in the break room, right? A dormant tie is a little bit different. This is somebody like you and I are Joe. This is somebody that you don't talk to all that often, somebody it's been a year or two years since you've talked to. Maybe they got reassigned, you got reassigned, whatever. Like life happens. People move, people change roles, responsibilities, change careers, etc. And that creates these dormant ties. All of us fall behind in keeping track of all of the people that we've met. The irony is those connections are much easier to sort of reignite, like it's easier to grow a relationship with a weak tie or reignite a relationship with a dormant tie than it is to go to like a room full of strangers and try and work the room and find the perfect connection, right? So the big thesis in the book is that that's the hidden network that we're referring to in the subtitle is that these people who are in your life in some capacity, maybe they are now, but they're weak ties, you're not noticing them enough, or these people who you haven't talked to in years. So you don't think about them when you think about your contacts and the people that you know, those people are a potent source of new information, new ideas, new introductions, all of that sort of thing. And so it's not about networking. It's not about working the room, not about meeting strangers, not about finding ways to get to know more people and schmooze people, etc. The most effective thing you can do is develop a strategy where you're regularly checking in with those people so that if they need you or you need them, it's not this really awkward conversation where we haven't talked to each other in five years and now I have to ask for help. It's just another conversation that we have every couple of months. And this one just happens to be around the fact that I need some help.
1: I love the fact that you talk about networks and how, you know, some catastrophic events can be avoided if you surround yourself with the right network, because I feel like leaders often or too often surround themselves with people who are like them or surround themselves with people they're not intimidated by or challenged by. And I think that good leaders will know their weaknesses and they'll surround themselves with people who counter their weaknesses by, you know, being their strengths. I'm not sure if that made sense or not.
2: Oh, no, it makes perfect sense. And we see it in the literature. I mean, there's our normal psychological bias. We like people who think like us, right? Because clearly they're brilliant. Otherwise, you know, if they disagreed with us, they're not so smart, but also that compounds. Like, And we actually find that that bias towards self-similar people is actually the smallest element of how people find themselves in echo chambers, right? Because like it's 2021. If you're a leader at this point and you don't know that you need to be seeking out diverse voices, I can't help you. Like you've been ignoring decades of people telling you that. But what tends to happen is that little tendency to spend a little bit more time, to check in a little bit more often, to listen a little bit harder to people who already agree with us creates a multiplicative effect or a compounding effect. Because where do you meet most new people? Well, you meet them through other introductions. You meet them through friends of friends. That's why we called it that in the book, right? And that can be a bad thing for increasing diversity in your network. Because if you're spending the most time always with people who are similar to you, then they're referring you to more people. And over time, the echo chamber effect actually Compounds. And we've seen this at an individual level. There's actually a fascinating study of a public school, public university system in California. 40,000 people. And you could see just throughout the normal academic year, right? Like August to May, you could see it in people's email conversations over time. They were talking to people more self-similar with them so that by the end of being at this diverse 30, 40,000 person campus, people were in their echo chambers by the end of the year. And it's not because they don't know that diversity is important. It's because they don't know that that little bias towards people that are self-similar causes them to have more conversations, longer conversations, more in-depth conversations with people who are similar to them. And then who they end up meeting are people similar to those people and hence similar to yourself. So you can find yourself in echo chambers while actually thinking that you've got a ton of diversity, et cetera. So by the way, I hinted at it earlier. That was why my big question was like, when's the last time one of your people spoke up and disagreed with you? Like, when was the last time you actually heard an argument for why you're wrong? You don't have to agree with it, but if nobody is telling you that argument, you probably need to work on the people you're talking to and find a few who disagree with you.
0: Yeah, David. And that's like one of the biggest lessons, you know, I've learned doing this podcast is if you knew Jacob and I, we're from two totally different backgrounds. Jacob's from the Northeast. I'm from the South. So bless your heart, David. (laughs) And like Jacob will sit there and watch, you know, Patriots football and Tom Brady like all day and go play golf where I'm perfectly happy, like sitting here, reading a book and writing a blog post. And so, you know, just this podcast alone has just been a really you know neat experiment because we've both come from two different angles and we're coming together in a solid purpose.
1: And you demonstrated the difference right there by saying the Patriots and Tom Brady because he plays for Tampa Bay now.
0: I'm sorry, I forgot you shifted allegiance once your quarterback left the Patriots. He's everybody's quarterback.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Living where I live now, I, I sometimes think prior to the Tampa Bay era that America's team wasn't necessarily the Dallas Cowboys. America's team was whoever's playing the Patriots. Right. And so I kind of feel like America's team is the Chiefs in the Super Bowl this time around. Right. Because they're who's playing Tom Brady. That's my team, David. (laughs) well it is not mine i actually my family's originally from philadelphia so i have the misfortune of being an eagles fan it only worked out well once although when it did it was because we beat tom Tom brady Brady.
1: yeah i'm getting off this interview this is this will never (laughs) air
0: we appreciate your time today david and if our listeners you know learn something in this podcast and want to learn more about you or about the work you've done where can they find you
2: yeah. I mean, the best place is probably com. I've got a really odd last name. And so all of the domains were open years ago. So it's just my name, dot uh, com, or just type that into Google and you'll find me and I think a wedding record for some guy in Virginia and that's it. So I'm the one with the website. So you'll find all the socials, all the resources, the articles and podcasts we were referring to on this. You'll find all of it there. So take a listen, keep the conversation going, especially as I was saying earlier, especially if you disagree with something I wrote, email me, let me know. Let's keep the conversation going.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate it. I love the, you know, these short practical interviews that we have with people like yourself who offer up uh, so much information that can be utilized in just, you know, a short uh, sit down with us. So really appreciate your time, David.
2: Oh, thank you all so much for having me. Thank you again
1: to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com, where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching From the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Garonsky signing off. And hope you tune into our next episode.
2: I came from the mud, on my